welcome to the Intervention Podcast. This is Nick here with Levi and Steve, and we're back tonight to bring you more slop for that overflowing trough. I know you get a lot of content, so thank you for coming here to get just a portion. Um, especially to our newer listeners, we've had a big spike, which I shouldn't say comes as any surprise given that we had bread on, but we've got a pretty big jump in listenership. So thank you if you're new to listening. Um, keep sharing it around and uh, we love you. So thanks for coming. I think Brett said he got one or two additional listeners that hadn't heard of his podcast from us. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, well, he can pay us back later for that one. But um, no, we're, we're obviously, you know, still riding a little bit high from that uh, from that collaboration. Um, we were happy to do it. And the response has been really good. So we're happy about that. We've got some more stuff coming for you down the pike. And we'll kind of update you on that at the end of the episode. But um, just want to do a little bit of catch up off the top. Um, Stevie, I know you just got back from another trip. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Any any political discussions that we can kind of dive into a little bit? Yeah, I went to Scotland. It was very nice. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not from Scotland, obviously, from the north of England, but from the enemy, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's strange. It sounds kind of, I, I don't know how to put it, but like I felt more at peace there than I've probably ever felt anywhere in my life, I would say. Half of that was the fact that I, we, my wife and I were hiking the whole time. So. You know, we were there for about eight days. I think we hiked like a hundred miles. Um, so I had no self reception or anything else. So that helped definitely. But just in general, it, I don't think a lot of people have been to the Highlands. But it is a beautiful part of the world. And with the coming climate disaster, it's you know it, it's got plenty of water. It's pretty cool temperature wise, and you know it was just a great place to be. Um, getting back here, I was like immediately depressed and stressed out when I landed in JFK. Um, I think this is one of the few countries that treats you as a criminal, like as you walk into the country. (laughs) Immigration's a nightmare, even if, you know, I'm I'm an American citizen now, but even then it's just like, so it's just terrible coming in here. It's so stressful. Yeah. And, you know, we we traveled around, we, we hiked, uh, stayed in some bed and breakfast and stuff. And, you know, it was, a lot of these bed and breakfasts over there, they have really nice atmospheres. And, you know, this one that we stayed in had a bar that the guy who owned it ran in the in the evenings. So you'd have dinner there. And then most of the people went into the bar and just kind of had a chat. So you got to meet people and, and just discuss stuff, which was good. But yeah, I talked to one guy there who told me that Trump was the greatest president ever. And Nigel Farage was the most successful uh, European politician in history. Boy. By that point, I was too drunk to, to like do anything but be dumbfounded. So that was interesting. <laughs> we, we went to Culloden, which I guess if you're American and you've watched Outlander, you might know what that means. I've never watched that show, but it's where kind of the final battle of the Jacobite Wait, revo- mean, revolution. Is it Outlander or Highlander? Outlander. Outlander? Okay. I've never seen it. But it was the final battle of the Jacobite Revolution, which was really interesting to hear, but it ended up, it's just like, you know, the deposed king of England's son, who was Catholic, I think, fighting against like the new Protestant king who had gotten rid of them. And it was just like two empires fighting each other. So, and one was backed by the French and one wasn't. So it was, you know, a little, it was just two empires fighting over who was going to rule Britain. But um, it was still interesting. And Clodden's, it was, it was a really nice, like, museum and cool area. But, like, 
again, Scotland was a great place, but then we, we had this guy drive us around and just like at the, the last day. And the main reason he drove us around is because we went to a few distilleries and Scotland has pretty serious drink driving laws. And plus I didn't want to drive on the wrong side of the road on those, on those roads and be drunk. But, um, you know, we were talking to him and he was an interesting guy. He was very pro Scottish independence, but he was also pro, like he was pro complete Scottish independence, not part of Europe and not part of the UK, which I thought was interesting. So Scotland think they found oil, more oil in the North Sea. And of course, Sunak wants to drill for that oil. But Scotland are very much have adopted like renewables. Lots of wind power. I think there's been multiple days where they've generated more wind power than, than the country needed. So they're, you know, they're, they're all about wind, you know, renewables now. And of course, they found this oil. And so the argument, of course, is Sunak wants to drill for it. They don't really want to drill right now. But then again, who owns it? So Scotland, yeah. it, Scotland say they own it. And Sunak says Britain owned it. And of course, the revenue, if, if Sunak wins, would, would go to Britain or England mostly rather than Scotland. So that was a big thing that, you know, the argument for Scottish independence is they couldn't, they don't have the resources to survive, but they obviously do have the resources to be. I mean, most of the oil in the North Sea would be in Scotland. It wouldn't be in, in England. So that was, you know, that's a bone of contention there. And the other thing was, and I, I did not realize this, 80% of the land in Scotland is owned by like five entities. <laughs> so you can like have a house, but the land you live on could still be owned by either it was like the crown, the church, the forestry service, and there was two others. Basically, just like rich people own everything in Scotland, which was very disappointing. Um, we went to the Isle of Skye, which is you know an, an island off the Highlands, and they had like this tiny little house. And again, there's it's really rugged land, so there's not a lot of land to build houses. I think there was like 120,000 inhabitants on Skye. And like a tiny house there. And again, most people there are like farmers or in tourism. Those seem to be the two main industries. And a tiny house there was 700,000 pounds. And the people there wow. were just like, we, you know, if, we, if you don't inherit a house, you can't afford to buy anything here. And that yeah, was sad we, as well. And basically, the, we, had, we were in this place and this guy came to play music. And he must, I mean, he was pretty internationally famous. He was a bagpipe player and he played, you know, the guitar, the mandolin, the bagpipes, the accordion, but he had been, you know, he travels all over the world and he was like, of, he was one of two traditional Scottish musicians who got invited to play at the G20. So, you know, say you want about the G20, but I, you know, he considered it quite an honor to be invited there. Um, so that was cool. Yeah. And the, the other thing we learned about, you know, after the the Jacobite revolution. And this is something that I may want to do a podcast on at some point was what they called the pacification, which was basically the British after Culloden, it was the, there was this thing called the Highland charge where the Highlanders would, you know, they'd have like their swords and their shields and then a knife underneath. And the only time it ever got beat was Culloden. And that was because two thirds of the army got stuck in what is essentially a peat bog and couldn't break the lines like they would do anyway. So the British forces, which I think were led by Duke, the Duke of Cumberland, defeated them, and they killed. You know, they killed most of them in the first rate, in the first wave. But then everybody else that was injured, basically the the Duke's army just surrounded them 
and waited for three days while they lay there dying. And then anyone who wasn't dead after three days, they just went out and stabbed. And then after that, they had this thing called the pacification, which was like a removal of all of Highland culture. So if you were caught speaking Gaelic, which is how the Scottish say, Gaelic, I think it's Gaelic in, in Ireland and Gaelic in Scotland, you weren't allowed to speak Gaelic, you weren't allowed to wear a kilt, you weren't allowed to play the bagpipes. Yeah, assimilation. Yeah, so anything that was part of this Gaelic Highland culture was just kind of eradicated. And the only way you could do them is if you joined the British army, then they would let you take part in these, in these, um, you know, old practices. And of course they gave these, the clan chiefs of Scotland like land, as long as they swore, they swore, um, loyalty to the British. So they owned all this land and they had these farms that they call croft farms, which are like really thin. And there'd be like 10 crofts in a row of really thin land that you, you farmed your own crops on. And then the 10 crofts would be called a township and then they could have their own livestock and the, they would communally farm the livestock. And then there was a point where that became too costly because I think the price of wool went down. So they, then they had a thing called the clearances where they basically, these clan chiefs forcibly evicted anyone that was on the land. And so we, we hiked through all these old, they're now in ruins, but these old kind of little villages that were on the coastline. And these were, they put people in these houses like two days before they shipped them either to Canada or to Australia or to the US. They just basically evicted them from the land, put them in these houses, like guarded them and then put them on ships and got rid of them. So I think like that period might be something interesting to talk about at some point. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was a great trip just for getting away and the, and the history is interesting. And when I was talking to this guy that was driving us around, you know, he was talking about the solidarity between the Scots and the Irish mm-hmm. and how they have, a, they have a lot of, you know, they've obviously both been brutalized by the British over the years or the English. Um, and just, you know, there's a lot of things in and around Inverness. There's this big um, viaduct that was built by the Irish that came over to help the Scottish at different times. And they, there seems to be a lot of that, like the Irish coming over to Scotland and living in like Glasgow mostly, but also touring around and, and doing work in different places. And I think a lot of Scots doing the same in Ireland. So now I'm curious, did, did he mean the Northern Irish or just, or the, no, these were the, Irish, the Irish, Southern yeah. Irish. Yeah. Just because I know that there's a lot of, a lot of history there with a lot of the Scots and it probably has to do with some of that displacement and assimilation attempts ultimately going over to be part of like the plantation settlement in Northern Ireland as well. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there's definitely a lot of solidarity. There's also probably some animosity in certain sec- sections of it as well. But I mean, as you're talking about this history, I am thinking of, you know, in the trip that I took in the history that I learned with Ireland, there is a lot of par- There are a lot of parallels. So it's good to hear that, you know, that, that solidarity exists as well. Yeah. And we talked, so he took us past this one old castle that it was gone, which I guess Wallace had been in when he was a steward of Scotland. And he had been there to meet with all the clan chiefs to try and unite them. And so like me being like the dumb English or American guy who does, I, I don't know that part as well of, of Scottish history, except for like watching Braveheart. <laughs> and I, have you guys seen Braveheart? Yeah, I have not. So it like makes, it makes Robert the Bruce out to be like a piece of shit, right? Right. They never met. Wallace and Bruce never met. Yeah. But Bruce, I think at one point was married to 
So his, the, the one thing that's accurate, I guess, from what this guy told me and, and what I'll probably read about later is that Bruce's allegiances did change from time to time. He'd be promised things by the English and he would, so he would kind of be on their side. And, but ultimately he did, you know, after Wallace died, lead, lead the Scottish to some form of independence for a while and become Robert I of, of Scotland. Um, but I think he was married at one point to like the heiress to the Ulster plantation, mm-hmm. which the timeline doesn't seem to match from what we read, but I'd, I'd have to go back and look. But he, he was married to someone from Northern Ireland at one point. So that was kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating history. Um, there are really interesting people. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's the same over here, but there's this stereotype of like the Dower Scott. And that was definitely not the impression I got. Everybody was super, really friendly. And especially this guy that drove us around. Once I told him I was an anti-imperialist, he, uh, he liked me a lot more. So, <laughs> there you, go. You, see, you can make friends. Yeah. You can make um, friends being a leftist. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there, that. And then the other thing that happened was we were staying basically on Loch Ness for the biggest Nessie hunt since the 70s. So a little bit of fun. <laughs> No, it sounds like a good trip. And I definitely want to dive into some of that more. I think we will as we get into maybe this next new project down the line a little bit with the IRA and the history there, because I think we're going to have to kind of set the stage with some, you know, history on the development of the British via the British Isles via the English, right? The English yeah. drive. Um, and we'll get into some of that common history. And I think it's interesting. And I don't want to get into it too deep right now, but when you mentioned like a truly independent Scotland and just talking to people in Ireland about, you know, I think being part of the European union has obviously had some huge economic positive impacts for them, but also some very negative ones. I mean, just talking to some people in like some, some of the fishing towns that we were around down in County Kerry, you know, they talked about how, because, you know, they're part of the European union, the waters, you know, that they're surrounded by, are not Irish waters, they're European waters, right? So you can get like much bigger Spanish and French fishing vessels coming to fish the same waters with the same right as the smaller Irish vessels would have, you know? So you get these big, you know, Spanish fishing ships coming up and basically taking the fish out of the water, which it's very easy for, you know, the Irish just to go get, but it's making it harder for them to actually compete in this scenario. So it does have, you know, the, Obviously, I think we would look at Brexit as kind of coming from a very reactionary place, but I think you could come at, you know, separation from the European Union project as it's currently constituted as coming from a very, from a place centered in national sovereignty that we could actually support, you know, if it wasn't coming from this very reactionary, xenophobic, racist kind of sentiment, I think that really spurred Brexit on, right? Yeah. And I mean, he mentioned in terms of uh, Scottish farming, you know, and it's kind of similar to the episode we did on like the subsidies for farmers here. You know, he said the EU would, would subsidize them to farm certain things. So a lot of, you know, what you would consider native Scottish crops kind of went away and, um, they were forced or, or kind of incentivized to farm certain things. So he was saying since Brexit, they've been able to focus more on what they would traditionally farm, farm what they want. So like, again, that was an adva- in his eyes, an advantage that he saw there. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, definitely a topic that we could, I think, return to in more detail, just in terms of the problems of the European union and 
again, as with everything, we start talking about a topic and it's like, oh, well, there's an episode there somewhere. So (laughs) we'll probably never get to them all. But um, just while we're on the topic of Britain a little bit, Levi, I think you had looked into some of the ongoing events in British politics and had a little bit of an update because we do want to kind of maintain our status as a podcast that covers both U.S. and British imperialism, right? Yeah, your first point that you'll mention, Levi, was big news when I was there, obviously. Yeah, I only just heard about it today, but apparently it is seismic British news. But apparently the schools are collapsing and there are reports going back to at least uh, 2010 that the collapse was going to be happening around now. It was incredibly predictable based on the specific kind of concrete structure that was used to create these schools. And so it's being blamed squarely on the conservative government for doing absolutely nothing in preparation for this well-known imminent physical collapse of infrastructure. And now a good number of students are being told, I believe, a week before school started that they're not going to school, that they're going online, and that's going to disproportionately affect kids with any sort of learning disability uh, in terms of even cascade effect on everyone that's doing remote learning with a week out without any warning or preparation. I mean, it's truly a sign of absolute political malfeasance. And uh, with the odds of the next election sweep happening for the Labour Party, we have this from the Times, quote, there even, even Tony Blair didn't have this many Blairites in his cabinet. Speaking of the Rishi, or speaking of the Keir Starmer reorganization of a shadow government. So things are not looking better for their future, if there's even more Blairite people that are going to be coming into government. I mean, I don't know that Tony Blair uh, was much better on investing in infrastructure and building British strength. Just real quick, Steve, before you get into it, I mean, just because I think a good framing for this is disaster capitalism, right? Because again, you've got this opportunity for essentially the privatization built on the backs of like these crumbling institutions, right? I mean, we saw it in, I mean, Naomi Klein has a book on it. I suggest you read, you know, but like what happened when Katrina comes in and destroys a town, what happens when these tsunamis hit these Southeast Asian coastal towns, they get turned into basically private property, right? So, I mean, again, you could see this very easily when you have either the Rishi Sunak government, the Tories, or again, this Blairite Labor Party coming in and looking at this as not an opportunity to rebuild public institutions in a better form, but to say, okay, well, we're going to let the private market take care of this problem for us. Sorry, Steve. No, I mean, the two points I'll make on this is the schools that are crumbling are what in England we would call state schools or public schools here. You know, it's not Eton and it's not Harrow and all these private schools that like Cameron and Blair and all these guys go to. Those schools are fine, uh, obviously. And the other thing I was going to say is just, uh, you know, true leftists in England do not like Stormer. Um, You know, they were obviously much more behind Corbyn until he got fucked by everybody. So, yeah, I, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, he's like super Tony, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, there's, it doesn't seem like there's any love lost between the two. That Starmer has just as much hatred of the left as the left does of him. He has yeah. no interest in building any kind of coalition government or a broad-based support. He's a neoliberal through and through. Yeah. yeah. That's horrifying news. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just a little little uplifting note on the impending labor wave to read past the headlines and not think of it as a socialist or leftist. However, it's going to be framed by the New York Times as a resurgence of democracy or whatever they're going to say it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, and it just goes to show that just because the um, empire starts crumbling doesn't mean that like things are going to get better. (laughs) You know, I mean, like Britain is a crumbling empire and they're just getting more and more reactionary. Right. Yeah. I mean, on one point on that, which was, you know, I talked to my dad when I got back and he's just, he'd just been to England with my mom. Um, and they'd stayed in Yorkshire again, out in the countryside. And the one thing that he said, he's like, as bad as British politics are, he still thinks it, it's, and it may just be like a British civility thing. He just doesn't, he gets so much more stressed here by American politics. And I think it's because it's like so much more in your face. Like you can kind of mm. get away from politics in England a little easier, I think, especially if you're not like, like we are, where, where you're actively looking at it every day. Um, and especially if you're out in the country or, you know, and it's easier to get out. And well, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but the remote parts of England seem to be more remote or of Britain, more remote than where I've been here. Like I've hiked in the Smoky Mountains and still had cell phone reception, but that was not the case where we were. So I think you can get away from things a little easier there. And I don't know if that was part of like, you know, what my dad experienced, just the ability to, to get away and not have to listen to it every day. So. Good babe. And I mean, again, and when I say they are going more reactionary, I'm not, I'm using that as a brush to paint their government and their state, yeah. not necessarily what the people are saying, you know? Yeah. Although. Anyway, you guys got anything else on stuff from across the pond before we turn back over here and into matters of U.S. imperialism? <laughs> well, it's, a, it's across the pond, but I suppose it's still a matter of U.S. imperialism. But uh, the United States has announced that they are sending depleted Ukraine, u- uranium rounds to Ukraine. I think you were deplete saying before. Ukraine. Deplete Ukraine. Yeah. I think you were saying beforehand that you had thought that was already happening. And as you were saying, this seems like a pattern. Yeah. Well, when this all kind of sparked off and you reminded me that it was just the notion or the proposition that depleted uranium rounds were going to be sent over to Ukraine to basically combat Russian tanks, essentially, I think is what the framing is, is that they're very, they're very good at piercing armor, right? So this came out, I think, a couple months ago that the Biden administration was kind of talking about it and that Ukraine was requesting it. Um, And there was obviously a righteous kind of furor over the proposition of this because, I mean, we've seen the effects of depleted uranium um, in places like Iraq, right, where children are basically being born with birth defects, right? I mean, this stuff gets into the soil. It affects crops. I mean, and we're talking about Ukraine and, you know, this part of Russia being essentially one of the breadbaskets of the world, right? So obviously there's a, there's righteous indignation about this idea of sending this, these really harmful, you know, weapons of destruction, munitions of destruction to kind of exacerbate and amplify this conflict, right? So I guess I had just assumed when all this furor kind of broke out that this had already been a thing. But again, to the point of that I was making when we were talking offline, Levi, it seems like this happens a lot. I think, you know, a good analogy is probably the leak of the Supreme Court document, right? Not that we had like the same mass mobilization to, you know, some extent over something like this. But again, 
the idea that this could be a thing comes out, people lose their minds, right? And then quietly today, and maybe I just missed some stuff. I wasn't very online today. I wasn't paying attention, but then it gets pushed out that, oh no, now it's actually happening. And all the energy was already kind of expended, you know, on being like on condemning the, the notion of it, but now it's happening in actuality. Yeah, the headlines are more about how depleted uranium rounds really aren't as controversial as they initially sounded. Wait, I mean, didn't what did didn't I thought we have a we we have a clip from Jen Psaki saying something about Russia <laughs> potentially sending depleted uranium rounds? Don't we like from like twenty twenty two or something like that? And how I think the words she used were war crime. I mean, maybe I'm making this up, but I think those were the past three things that the United States decided to send over to Ukraine. I, I'm not sure if she specifically talked about depleted uranium, so we'll give her. <laughs> oh, a that pass was the cluster bomb. That was the cluster uh, bombs. Yeah, right, 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 right. The cluster bombs and five other items that we've already sent over there. But yeah, of course, as soon as Russia decides to send their depleted uranium rounds, which they do have access to as a nuclear power, wait for the in New York Times headline stating that this is a cross over the red line of of nuclear use of waste and war, and we're all meant to blame Putin for this escalation. It's just good to keep tabs on the fact that this escalation is happening, this time at least, on the side of the United States, not to let but now Russia it's a off necess- but, but now it's a necessary step, right? And it's right. all about the framing. Now it's a necessary step. This is going to provide much needed munitions into the, ar- into the depleted arsenals of Ukrainians, right, to fight in the battle of democracy. Again, yeah. and to your point, you make a good point. We have to emphasize it again and again. It's not to, we would condemn Putin, you know, using these as well and the Russian army using these as well. But again, I am going to more vocally condemn my fucking government doing it because again, it's my tax dollars, which right. are ostensibly paying for these, for these munitions. Yeah. And that's what even hits on the propaganda irony. So the current propaganda is that the surge is working, that Ukraine is pushing back. And part of that narrative is that, you, is that Russians are using outdated tanks, outdated technology that are more susceptible to this weaponry. But that same logic actually doesn't work if you're trying to get munitions that are depleted uranium, because those depleted uranium munitions are only really necessary against modern technology, against modern tanks, which they're also claiming out of the left side of their mouth, Russia does not have access to. So... Really, there's this huge contradiction going on. I mean, which is true. Don't think it really matters because uh, the military industrial congressional complex is getting their cash either way. Whichever yeah. is true is really beside the point. Absolutely. Steve, you got anything on that? No. I mean, it's just, it's sad that the people that talk out, talk out on this right now that are public, right, are the, are the right. Um, yeah, I think we talked a few months ago that like, Marjorie Taylor Greene had said something about this. Um, I think when Trump was in office, didn't he say like the military industrial comp- uh, complex wants us at war all the time? Yeah. I think he made that quote. And and now when you listen to those shitheads, especially like the shithead right wing podcasters, they're just like, you know, they say the left, they mean Democrats, but they're just like, the left used to be against war and now they're all for war. And it's just like, yeah, the I mean, liberals. Yeah. Yeah. They've 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 kind of got a point when it comes to liberals, which is just sad now because like there's no, there doesn't seem to be any. And again, I haven't been as online recently, obviously either. But there doesn't seem to be any outrage from the Democrats from any of them, even like the more left leaning ones on this. It's just all like towing the the company line. 
But and I don't think that this liberal war drive is limited to X, Twitter, an online discourse. I mean, you talk to liberals in real life. I mean, Russia bad. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, Russia yeah. bad, Ukraine good. Like mm-hmm. that's really the sentiment that comes out. And Brian Becker on the Socialist Program talks about this a lot because you know he's someone that was a socialist organizer in against the Vietnam War back in like the '60s, and he is constantly making the point that one of like the key differences between now and then, and really I think you could argue even into the early days of the Iraq War before Obama, was that you know there was a good mass of liberals who were anti-war. You know that you could, as a socialist or a communist, still you know, join arms with liberals on the street to protest against like the Vietnam war. Like think about like the hippie movement, right? I mean, that was more individualistic, individualistic, liberal, right? But you know, still anti-war. It's really, I mean, I've been to the anti-war rallies right now. You don't see liberals there, you know? And then to the point about the right, I mean, what really exposes the hypocrisy there is that they're not truly anti-war. They are like anti-Ukraine war. But it's only because they saw a missed opportunity in getting Russia on our side in the future fight against China. And that's what they're also pissed off about now. So they're not truly anti-war, anti-military industrial complex. I mean, look at fucking Trump's rhetoric against China, yeah. you know? Even, ahead, to t- even to take what you're saying on another level and to take some of the air out of this right-wing anti-war movement even further, I think the comparison that you made earlier to the abortion issue for Democrats is actually a worthwhile comparison. So the Supreme Court announces that they're going to be striking down Roe v. Wade. The Democratic Party does next to nothing. The Democratic voters get really pissed off. It gets struck down. The Democratic Party does absolutely nothing. Democratic voters get pissed off. So imagine if you're a Republican, you hear that this money, all of this stuff is going to be going to Ukraine that you vehemently disagree with. You see your politicians saying they're going to do something about it. They control the Congress. And yet the Republicans do absolutely nothing to prevent the funding of the Ukraine war. I mean, realistically, it goes to your point. The Republican Party really has no interest in defunding the Ukraine war. They just want to gin up their base so they can get voters out of it the same way that Democrats want to get voters out of the abortion issue. There's not really an issue. There's not really a desire to take it off the table to do anything about it. Yeah, we've said we've said this a lot about a lot of topics. And, and, you know, when I mention and Green saying that, you know, I fully realize she doesn't believe anything she says, but no, I know you do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's, um, it's interesting that like, and we've said this a lot about like, you know, education and healthcare and other stuff, but like, imagine if any politician or any political group did something, the, the support they would get, like, you know, lip service goes so far and we're going to get a lot of lip service for the next, however many fucking months until the election. <laughs> um, But imagine if like someone actually did something like the support they would get because you know what's going to happen if Trump wins. It's going to be the like the real left's fault, right? Because they didn't vote. We didn't vote for Biden. Cornell West or Gloria Riva or something like that, you know? Exactly. So it's our fault that Trump's the president. But like if Biden had done one fucking thing that he said he was going to do or like anything that is these, you know, he would have support. It's always... It's, it's never like what they do. It's, it's what the other guy, you know, well, at least we're not Trump. Then therefore you have to vote for us. And, it, you know, it works on a lot of people, unfortunately. And that's just like, it, I don't know, this yeah. pisses me off. No, yeah, it's it's that, that 0.2% that goes to leftish third parties is somehow responsible for the direction of the entire country. Yep. Yeah. 
you know, I wish the left had that much influence over the direction of this country. That should give a key to anybody hearing that is really, you think that many people decided the direction of this country and that's not a problem in itself. Yeah. Like why did your candidate just barely get over the finish line? Maybe they should actually do something to deserve a greater mandate. Yeah. I was going to say, if they are that important, maybe you should appeal to them a little bit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know? So just shut the fuck up. But I do want to kind of pull it back a little bit because, you know, we talked a lot about themes of media, right? And then who the enemies are and with respect to the U.S. imperialism and everything. And I think the media framing is really important, right? So as I was trying to come across, come up with topics for this episode, I stumbled across this think tank because one of the things on, you know, that's in everybody's news feeds right now is this recent BRICS summit, right? BRICS plus it became because we BRICS added, uh, I think, was it Saudi Arabia, UAE? Um, I have the list here somewhere, but anyway, like there were multiple new members added to BRICS. So it's becoming BRICS plus, right? And BRICS is obviously becoming like a boogeyman on the world stage as it relates to, you know, the dominant powers, the G7, Western imperialism, whatever you want to call it. So I came across this think tank called the Center for European Policy Analysis, right? And they've got a bunch of, you know, pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia, war hawk kind of messaging on their site. And I found this article called BRICS, the Coalition of the Globally Grumpy. So I thought that this might be worth diving into a little bit, right? Because again, and I think we need to have a nuanced conversation on BRICS. I think you can get a little bit meme and, you know, not recognize all of the kind of fundamental contradictions to this coalition. But I think, you know, you can also miss the forest for the trees if you're going one way or the other with this, you know, because there's some things that I think you can take out of this from a realistic appraisal of the world situation. I want to get into that a little bit. But maybe before we talk about, you know, maybe our perspectives on BRICS and what this actually means, what the recent developments actually mean, I want to talk about this outfit a little bit, because I think this is just one of many essentially information laundering outfits that are on the dole of the military industrial complex and capitalists that kind of help shape the narrative around world events like the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right? And I'm going to link to a Katie Johnstone article because I just stole that title or that phrase from a title of an article that she wrote. And it is that think tanks are information laundering ops for war profiteers. And I'll link to that. I don't want to focus on that article, but it's worth reading um, because I think it will align with what we're going to talk about tonight. But anyway, this think tank put out this article and I first want to start with who they are. So the headline description on their about page reads, quote, the Center for European Policy Analysis, CEPA, is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy institution based in Washington, D.C., focused on strengthening the transatlantic alliance through cutting edge research, analysis, and programs. Okay. <laughs> this is their mission before we get into discussion a little bit. CEPA's mission is to ensure a strong and enduring transatlantic alliance rooted in democratic values and principles with strategic vision foresight, and impact. Through cutting-edge research, analysis, and engagement, we provide innovative insight on trends affecting democracy, security, and defense to government officials and agencies. 
We help transatlantic businesses navigate changing strategic landscapes, and we build networks of future leaders versed in Atlanticism. That could practically be the tagline to our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but like, has has a paragraph ever said less? (laughs) I mean, it simultaneously says a lot about what this is going to be while giving you absolutely nothing of substance. Yeah, it almost sounds like an AI-generated mission statement for a think tank. Yeah, but I also want to be careful because I think if we dismiss it, it can kind of obfuscate how insidious this shit can be, right? Because when we get into this article, I mean, we'll see that our mainstream media is littered with these same kind of tactics and perspectives, you know? Yeah, they're writing the first draft of how things are framed. Or attempting to. That's the impact they're trying to make in terms of statecraft. Right. Now, before we get any further, I want to linger on that phrase nonpartisan. Okay. Because these kind of things, these nonprofits, right, they are still obligated to list who their supporters are. But it's interesting because they don't call them like their funders or their backers. It's a very positive framing. These are our supporters. These are the people that give us money to help us do this glorious work that we're doing, right? To protect democracy and fight authoritarianism across the world, particularly in Europe, right? So let's just pick a few and I'll link to this as well. These are the supporters. And it reads, the Center for European Policy Analysis is grateful for the generous support of individuals, corporations, foundations, and governments have given to our work. Their contributions support our work to strengthen the transatlantic alliance. So just a couple here. Amazon Web Services, BAE Systems PLC, Google LLC, Larry Hirsch, Lockheed Martin, Microsoft, the National Endowment for Democracy, NATO Public Diplomacy Division, Robert S. Gelbard, the Schmidt Futures, U.S. Russia Foundation, the U.S. State Department, Victor Ash, among many others. So, I mean, I know I probably threw some names out there um, that maybe people don't recognize, but just click those links on this page and you'll see that they're like private capital investors running private hedge funds and shit like that. So again, this is just like a who's who of capitalist imperialist pigs and fucking the military industrial complex. Because just keep in mind, folks, that the National Endowment for Democracy is fucking CIA funded as well. So nonpartisan though, nonpartisan. And uh, I think you forgot to highlight the uh, William Morris Endeavor Entertainment Agency is also a big supporter, representatives of such global elitists as Adam Sandler. And by globalist, I mean, you know, like the things with the hats and the curly hair. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's truly absurd. But to even put a point of irony, I mean, they are nonpartisan. They have no interest in Democrats or Republicans. Their interest is in furthering the aims of neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, right. But you have to like, to that point exactly, Levi, you have to understand this is framing the nonpartisan framing. The partisan we're talking about is Republicans and Democrats. And when it comes to issues like this, as we were talking about before, there's not that much daylight at all. And it's just just like these rich donors, right? To give money to both parties. I mean, again, it's just the protection of, like you said, imperialism and capitalism. So. Well, and it's like so many of these places, institutions, you could look at like what they contribute to different parties. And I guarantee maybe they give a little bit more to Democrats. Maybe some of them give a little bit more to Republicans, but they all fucking hedge their bets. Right. Exactly. 
It was like the big shock and awe when it turned out that Elon Musk is a Republican. Like, really? That's that's shocking. Yeah, I'm and shocked that he was even bothering to claim one or the other. I thought they would all just be quiet like Zuckerberg and Google and just play both sides. Yeah. And like, I think Zuckerberg and Bezos are like registered Democrats. I mean, does that make you feel good? Like, <laughs> you know, right. You prefer Gavin Newsom? Like, yeah. Who, who's your hero here? Right. It's just a cast of villains as far as I can see. Anyway, the point is, is just to like dismiss that kind of language out of hand as if you're going to be getting, because you're not going to be getting some kind of like information that is untainted by ideology. Yeah. I mean, we can go on record to say that we're a nonpartisan podcast either. We don't support either the Democrats or the Republicans. Yeah. So send us your tax deductible checks. I, that's, <laughs> we are not tax deductible and we have no way to accept checks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can give you a mailing address if you guys really want, but (laughs) (laughs) PO box. Um, Anyway, let's get back to it. Um, But before we get into this article, because again, I kind of told you we're going to be talking about the recent developments around BRICS as we talk about this article. But first, I thought it might just be worthwhile for us to kind of lay out on the table how we feel about recent BRICS development. Levi, maybe you want to kick it off or I can. It's up to you. You should go for it. You wrote out the statement. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a ton of positives with BRICS, also with a ton of caveats, right? And I think we just need to be realistic about what BRICS is and what BRICS is not, right? So BRICS is not a socialist block by any stretch of the imagination in the same way that we would think of like the Soviet bloc in the Cold War, right? There are socialist members like China. Right. There are progressive members like Brazil under Lula. But again, that could go the other way with Brazil as a reactionary member under Bolsonaro. Right. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of contradictions within the members of BRICS and BRICS Plus. You know, when we talk about the addition of Saudi Arabia, that is a government that I, I don't think anybody on the progressive end of the spectrum should you know, support. Right. And, you know, so a lot of these people like India, Brazil, and to some extent, Saudi Arabia, Arabia, they're not truly anti-imperialist, anti-Western imperialist members of this block. And in many cases, they're happy to work with the G7, right? So it's not like this ardent block that's standing as a bulwark entirely and unequivocally against Western imperialism. That is not what this is about, right? I do think that BRICS has a lot of potential. And that potential has yet to be realized, but there's a lot of promising signs that it can. Be. I think it is ultimately an extremely positive sign that U.S. financial and economic hegemony continues to weaken and that nations are willing to set aside some differences and work together to maintain and strengthen their own economic sovereignty, which, again, as we talk about all the time, every nation and its people have the right to decide what they do with it without external influences one way or the other, you know? I mean, it's for the people of Russia, ultimately, to decide which direction that their, gun- their country goes in the future, you know? Um, you know, one of the things that gets talked about a lot in the context of BRICS is de-dollarization. And I think there are signs that, you know, Br- BRICS growing is corresponding to a decline in dollar-based hegemony, right? There's a lot of talk about de-dollarization being a focus of member countries of this coalition, 
you know. But one thing you have to keep in mind is that this is going to be a long and slow, protracted, painful process, right? I mean, you're not going to lose dollar hegemony overnight. But again, this is a sign that it's weakening and that there are people out there that whatever their political alignment may be, are recognizing that the strength of their own currency is strength for their own economy and nations. And again, that is something that I think we should critically support. I mean, I'm not, I'm never going to support the U.S. dollar being weaponized against any nation. I'm, I'm just not. Like, I don't really care what that nation is or anything like that. It's just not really my place to decide, especially when all the evidence that the <laughs> that we have with respect to U.S. history just shows that the U.S. is going to use its powers for evil. I'm sorry. That's that's where I fall on that. Um, and, you know, there is some talk about establishing what Lula describes as like a unit of account in terms of a BRIC currency, but it's not going to be replacing a any of like the national currencies. And I think that's really important because I think that highlights that they're really focused on national sovereignty, you know. But again, even for a unit of account to go into effect, that's going to be a long process. There's going to be testing that takes place in various markets. They're going to have to look at how they deal with this unit of account when it operates alongside various independent national denominations. So again, this is not something that's going to happen anytime soon. So I think it's just important to emphasize that the BRICS countries are absolutely rife with contradictory ideologies and political programs. And we on this podcast continue to maintain that multipolarity is not the end-all be-all by any stretch of the imagination, but we take these developments ultimately as a positive sign of, of declining Western hegemony and look for the spaces that BRICS Plus will open up both for existing socialist projects like Cuba, Nicaragua, the DPRK, and hopefully the blossoming of new ones in places that we haven't yet foreseen. So that's the most I can give right now. Um, it's not going to be, it's, you know, BRICS Plus, this BRICS Summit was great. It wasn't, it's not changing anything right now in a earth shattering kind of way. And there's still a lot of problems that have to be worked through. Yeah. I think you really hit a big point when you said critical support. So it may be frustrating for anyone looking for full throated reaction or support of BRICS, but it's really important to remember that things could get better as this really starts to, uh, to unfold and these countries come in because they, at this point, run on consensus. So they're looking for cooperation among non-Western nations, at least at this point. And it's hard for us to really criticize international cooperation, even if it's among countries that we don't necessarily agree with. If you're working together, the world, as far as I can tell, can really only get better. Uh, generally, nationalistic fascists don't like working together. So that sort of will pan out over time. I'm willing to be corrected on that, but it just internationalism is not a big right-wing thing uh, in terms of actually being supported by the people. So to reiterate your point, BRICS as it exists may not be exactly what we want in the future, but it's the best alternative that's out there. I mean, what alternative international body would we say is doing any better with any tangible results? Yeah, I mean, what, what number international are the Trotskyists in right now? <laughs> I haven't haven't seen them accomplish much either. Yeah. No, and I, I think I've used the language that, and I hate to do this sometimes, but it's almost like given the current political, economical, global climate right now, global environment, it's almost like a necessary first step where you're going to have to get kind of these 
people that have been subjected to Western domination together, those contradictions are going to have to be worked through. Maybe some new iteration of BRICS comes in the future, but like, again, critical support for what's coming right now as it relates to fighting off Western domination spearheaded by the U.S. Right. And I think we're all even capable of criticizing what we see in BRICS, but it's relatively easy to do. And you can look to the pages of the capitalist press to get a pretty good idea of how it can be criticized, even legitimately. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, India, and I know there's conflicts between China and India and everything like that. And again, I'm hopeful that they can work that out. Um, and that doesn't, I don't think that indicates any support for the Modi government on my part, because um, Modi is essentially fascistic in a, in a lot of senses, right? Uh, I think he's pragmatic in a lot of ways, and I think he is still focused on national sovereignty. Um, he probably has some motives that for that that we wouldn't consider, you know, <laughs> ideal. But again, it's not really my place. Um, I hope China and India can work through that because I think at the end of the day, and Ben Norton has a good piece in Geopolitical Economy Report talking about, you know, being realistic that these tensions do exist, right? But that ultimately, like, the U.S. is going to look to exacerbate and magnify those tensions in order to generate splits within BRICS, right? And the fact that they're going to invest any time and resources into this shows that they see the alliance as a potential threat. Right. To even take that framing and sort of flip it a little bit. So the idea that India and China are at odds and they are at odds. There's no getting around that. Right. How would supporting their greater cooperation be for the detriment of the world if we're claiming that their opposition is potential World War Three between two nuclear powers that are the greatest populations on Earth? So shouldn't we really be celebrating any cooperation we see between these two nations rather than using it as a wedge to break them apart further? You, but you would hope, but that's not how we work, man. So who would benefit from another war between two massive nations? And why would they be pushing that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if we get into this article a little bit from uh, CEPA or SEPA, um, we might see, because I think what we're going to see here is that, you know, while some of the facts, and to, make, to be clear, not all of the facts are presented very well, um, you know, but like the broad strokes are that are outlined are kind of correct, but it's just, the framing and the perspective that you really got to be careful of because these people are good at what they do. Right. So let's just get into it. And, you know, as with all these, we'll just kind of interrupt as we go through. So again, the title from this article is BRICS, the coalition of the globally grumpy. The oh, subtitle. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, Clever. The, the BRICS summit in Johannesburg culminated in the bloc's first expansion in over a decade. It may well weaken rather than strengthen the grouping. My biggest criticism of the new expansion is I still haven't figured out the new catchy word they're going to use to describe this organization. Because BRICS was great. I think it's BRICS Plus, but... Yeah, that's not cool. I know, but... Listen, this is above my pay grade to figure out the new acronym. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we have AI that could figure that out? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, getting into it. And here's the list of the new BRICS members, which I stumbled over earlier. But the new BRICS members, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, Ethiopia, and Argentina, were presented as significant additions by Russian President Vladimir Putin, who claimed the expansion signaled a crucial step toward a, quote, new multipolar world. 
end quote, the phrase he uses to imagine a world freed from the shackles of U.S. domination. I mean, yeah. Good start. Right. Yep. <laughs> While the block, quote, stands opposed to no one, he argued during the August meeting, the expansion is clearly imagined as a challenge to the collective West. Um, and I, I mean, I think in some cases that is true. And I think it's, a, but even if it's true, it's, a justif it's justifiable for them to want to present a challenge to the collective West. For example, I think Macron and Levi, we, had, um, we talked about this off the top a little bit. Macron expressed some interest in joining and he actually sought to attend the recent BRICS summit, um, but ultimately he was rejected. He wasn't allowed to go. Um, but I mean, I think that goes to show that, I mean, if you look at somewhere like China, China is basically the major trading partner for almost everywhere in the world, you know? And a lot of these places like France are kind of seeing the writing on the wall a little bit, especially as it relates to China. Um, and I think a lot of places in Europe have seen like the suffering that the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline has inflicted upon their populace um, as it relates to economic matters and just like heating your home um, in the winter and recognize that, hey, you know what, maybe we can't, you know, just rely on the U.S. for everything, especially when they're going to sell us natural gas for 5x the price after they ship it across the ocean. But I mean, my point is, is that, yes, while I think that BRICS is rightfully leery of some Western leaders participating in this, Western nations participating in this, especially those that are part of the G7, I don't think that we can just dismiss out of hand that they're willing to work with these people. I mean, India, as we talked about, you know, is a huge trading partner of the U.S. Um, China, as I mentioned, trades a lot with Europe. I mean, they're a huge partner, trading partner of Ukraine. And I, I, but I really do think that if the U.S. was coming to the table and willing to cooperate, they could actually work with China on things like the Belt and Road Initiative. I don't think China would exclude U.S. participation in this global project of cooperation and connectedness, for lack of a better term. Yeah, just to build on that, even the way that is phrased, so it's imagined as a challenge to the collective West. I mean, that's a very intentional way of putting that. Mm -hmm. So that means that they're insinuating here that BRICS is out to hurt you, the average American, that they hate your freedom. They hate the way that you understand Absolutely. the world. You, the average Frenchman, are under their crosshairs. Reality, they're talking about state, right? And as you're saying, in reality, if the American state negotiated in good faith any time in the past 20, 30, 40 plus years for win-win deals with the global south or these developing nations, you really think they would need to take this aggressive of a position? I mean, the history bears out that the United States has been belligerent since World War II in creating these neocolonial relationships. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to act so shocked and ashamed when they call out that these deals have been only to the benefit of the West and not to the benefit of the nations that are being extracted from. The Russian Federation wanted to join fucking NATO. Right. There were plenty of opportunities for the United States to renegotiate its standing in the world, to make multipolarity on their terms if they wanted to in the 90s. That's what the peace dividend could have been used for. But to your point, it was intentionally used to create further strengthens of United States hegemony. Russia was intentionally left out of NATO. China was intentionally relegated as a source of cheap labor. And those tables are turning. And Time soon, is speaking for itself. 
And as soon as China demonstrated some ability to kind of stand on its own, they were ostracized and made public enemy number one. I mean, you can see, I mean, there's charts showing public opinion of China falling precipitously after around Xi Jinping's first election. And also, if you're half these countries, Ethiopia, Argentina, Iran, China, just the rhetoric that comes out of the US about your country, whether it's China, communist, communist, bad, or Ethiopia is a backwards nation with people, you know, they can't even manage itself and just they have, you know, famines every, all the time and, and Africa's just, you know, backwards or whatever. It, just the rhetoric that comes out of the West. Why would they want to join a coalition with the West if they had it when they have options? I mean, just from like a sentiment point of view. And then again, just, I mean, Ethiopia, for example, like what's happened to Africa with fucking imperialism? Why would they want to join a, a Western coalition when they've seen, you know, just how their, na- how their continent has been raped continuously by the West, of, you know, for at least a century, right? Yeah. And just to accentuate the point that this is a viable option. As you said, Steve, the bloc now represents after this addition, 37% of global GDP measured at purchasing power parity or PPP, as well as 40% of global oil production and roughly a third of global gas production. So this is a viable economic block that people can look at, right? I mean, the rhetoric aside, which is obviously disgusting and just reinforces this whole colonial system on a superstructural level. But you, you can look at that and say, yeah, these people have always treated us like fucking shit. They've raped our continent of resources forever, right? And now I don't have to be subservient to them anymore because I've got a block coming along saying, look, I'll work with you. China and Russia have both forgiven African debts. And I listen, I am not naive enough to think that this was purely out of like the goodness of their hearts, right? But at the end of the day, if you're an African nation, you're going to look at that and be like, well, I mean fuck, what did I get from France? What did I get from Britain? What did I get from the US? And now I've got something viable. Right. To even put this in terms of critical support, you have these nations in the global South looking at the West, looking at their era of subjugation and disintegration and destruction, and that they're looking at this new organization. So putting it in the worst terms possible, it's the devil they know versus the devil they don't know. And that's putting it in framing that I don't even necessarily agree with, but why wouldn't they take that risk? They've already yeah. lost everything to the other guy. And this yeah. other person's offering them a hand up. I mean, it's just completely understandable so long as you understand these states as rational actors, not as, as the president would call them or the ex-president, future president, shithole countries. Yeah. I think it's even worth quickly running down the 14 countries that applied but weren't accepted. So we have Algeria, Bahrain, Bangladesh, Belarus, Bolivia, Cuba, Honduras, Kazakhstan, Kuwait, Palestine, Senegal, Thailand, Venezuela, and Vietnam. I don't think any of those countries, except for maybe Kuwait, have especially good relationships with the West. But how many of those places have been under the thumb of Western subjugation? We've got Vietnam and Cuba, two communist countries that were one bombed to hell, the other sanctioned to just outside hell's doorstep. Yeah. I mean, these people, these nations don't have great relationships with the West. And some of them 
do have great relationships with the West. I believe Kuwait has an incredibly strong uh, allied relationship with the United States. So there's yeah. something more going on there. And as you said earlier, France was interest, uh, stated interest in joining BRICS. And I quickly perused Israeli publications, and there's actually many calls for Israel to consider joining BRICS as well. I mean, there's just a very real economic reason that nations would be interested in joining this coalition. Uh, now, of course, Israel uh, is vehemently denying their interest in joining it, but uh, I think we can get into that further as we unravel the history of the United States, Zionism, and empire in that area. Way to, way to do that plug, buddy. Um, <laughs> Just trying to get you back to work. Yeah, yeah. I am, I am working on it. We'll, we'll close with that a little bit. Um, but anyway, to get back to the article, um, those are all good points. And I just want to restate that first one because I think that the transition is funny. Um, so again, I read earlier before we had that long conversation. While the block quote stands opposed to no one, Putin argued during the August meeting, the expansion is clearly imagined as a challenge to the collective West. And yet. <laughs> the new members very clearly contain some hostile to the U.S., Iran, or dissatisfied by, by their relationship with Washington, Saudi Arabia, and even those seeking to exploit what they see as new opportunities to play off the U.S. with others like China, the UAE. So we and, could break that down even one by one, but yeah. I'd like to start with Iran. And just ask, is this true? Is the Iranian government truly hostile to the United States? Because from what I understand, it's not like Iran and the United States are friends, but really that hostility goes one direction. How many of our generals have been assassinated by attacks by, from Iran? None. 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 I mean, Iran has continued following most of the decrees of the nuclear treaty, in spite of the fact that there's absolutely no benefit to them following it. It's just with the hopes that they'll gain some recognition of good faith. And Biden has continued negotiating with Iran to get that deal back on the table. Although I would argue those negotiations are in bad faith because he could have rejoined that organization with a executive claim on the first day, Definitely. but didn't. So is Iran hostile to the United States or is the United States hostile to Iran? I think it's definitely the latter, especially when we even look even further back post 9-11 Iran immediately tried to join the coalition of the willing going into Afghanistan and finding Osama bin Laden. And the Bush administration explicitly rebuked that cooperation. Well, they I mean, were part of the axis of evil. Right. They couldn't cooperate. And it just goes to the absurdity of why these nations really are interested in joining BRICS. It's not because of their belligerence. It's because of the United States belligerence over the past you know, name a number, I'd say at least since World War II. Yeah. And I mean, like someone like Soleimani, as I understand, I mean, he was like kind of a national hero in a lot of ways. And he was an enemy of a lot of the same groups that were ostensibly our enemies in these Middle East conflicts, right? Like, I don't think Soleimani had any love or the Iranian government has any love for groups like ISIS or anything like that. Or Al-Qaeda even. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a, I mean, as soon as, if the United States was willing to understand Iran as a rational state, as every evidence has pointed at it being a rational state, I think there would actually be a lot of opportunity for cooperation and maybe mutual benefit for the people of Iran. 
Because as it is right now, these massive sanctions against Iran are not hurting the leadership. They're not pushing them to make reforms. And it's the people of Iran that are suffering from that belligerence. Yeah. No, and I mean, there's a lot of history here, which eventually we'll have to get into as well, which posits this or which, you know, leads to this kind of framing. But again, I think key here is just this kind of implicit assumption that the readers of this article aren't going to dive into that framing anymore, right? It's just like, oh yeah, automatic. Iran is hostile to the U.S. Why? Why might there be elements of the Iranian populace and the Iranian government that are hostile to the U.S.? Could it have anything to do with the coup of Mohammed Mossadegh back in 1953 led by the CIA? I mean, (laughs) does anything connect at all? But no, it's like it's just taken for granted. Yeah. I mean, realistically, as I was saying, you could go to the Iran-Iraq civil war where the United States was pumping millions, maybe even billions of dollars into Iraq to outfit Saddam Hussein to kill as many Iranians as possible. Mm -hmm. And yet the Iranian state has time and again offered hand of cooperation to the United States in order to get better positioning for their people. Just some room to fucking breathe. Right. Which I think is really like key to this whole BRICS thing, you know, like opening up trading partners for Cuba that could get around, you know, would have the financial muscle to get around the U.S. blockade and sanctions. I mean, breathing space for real people. I think we talked about this in a Marx episode, but if there truly was a rational ruling class on some level, they would have allowed Bernie Sanders to be elected because he would be willing to make these cooperative moves because otherwise continually pressing the thumb down on the international scale is not going to work on a long-term basis. As you stated, these states actually are economically viable and they will eventually become powerful over time. So are they going to become powerful with the United States cooperation and input? Or are they going to become powerful and see that the United States has, since World War II, shown absolutely no sign of good faith and cooperation? And then why would they offer their hand to help or to cooperate after that history? I mean, it's amazing they're doing it now. I mean, the utopian in me wants to think that they will continue to be cooperative or attempt to be cooperative even after they've economically surpassed the West. All we can deal with is what we're seeing right now. But, um, you know, and I, I think, you know, we could go through all these with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but I don't know if we have time tonight. Um, but, you know, I think everybody listening can dive into the nuances and complications in those relationships um, a little bit more. So anyway, getting back to it. So SIPA continues. However, the addition of new countries with little in common in values, governance, or stance towards the West makes the transformation of an economic bloc into a political powerhouse less likely, not more. With Russia's own influence within the bloc declining precipitously, its wealth and strength bleeding into the battlefields of Ukraine while its economy became the most sanctioned in the world, its ability to bring about its vision for a new world order is just as distant now as before the expansion. And I'm sorry to continue to interrupt this thing, but I mean, I think that premise on its own needs to be challenged. You know, Biden started this whole thing off with, listen, we're going to make the ruble into rubble. And I mean, it has had its shares of up and ups and downs. But I mean, I think you could very easily argue that U.S. sanctions, U.S. aggression, this U.S. proxy war against Russia 
has really accelerated this push towards de-dollarization with, you know, antagonization of Russia and now China. And I, I mean, I don't know if there's much basis to say that Russia is weakened by this whole thing when we're framing it as they're growing within BRICS. Right. And I, I think your assessment is fair on the national economic front, but we also need to be aware that there is propaganda being shelled out on both ends of this conflict. So maybe Russia is growing economically, but we simply know that massive uh, economic sanctions against a country affect the working class and the poor the most in that country. Absolutely. So while the capitalist class within Russia may be showing growth in economic leaps and bounds, I mean, that's what we've been told in this country for the past 10 years as well. And it's not trickling down. But to your point, Russia is not necessarily interested in creating a vision of itself at the head of a new world order. They may be interested in something crazy like cooperation with China, South Africa, Brazil, India. For its own economic well-being. I mean, the idea of a multipolar world as the end point is just unfathomable the way this article is framed. There has to be one king. They can't imagine there being the desire for multipolarity. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not going to make any apologies for the oligarchs of Russia, but the fact remains that there are still many legacies within Russia of the Soviet Union in terms of social safety nets, state-run assets. And again, a lot of that has been privatized and everything like that. But I, and while it's not ideal, and again, I don't want to make any apologia for capitalist domination of, of Russia because it, it is dominated by capitalists. There are still some protections for working people there that just don't exist here, that we, we, wouldn't, we don't even countenance here. I mean, I've said it before on this podcast, and I'm not going to go back on this, that I think when it comes to economics, you could make a very convincing argument that Putin governs to the left of Biden. I mean, how many world leaders govern to his right? <laughs> but no, seriously, I understand. You know, and if we hear tomorrow that there's a massive uprising of the people in Russia... And the New York Times is claiming that it's just uh, chaos caused by the Ukraine war. Um, we would need to be cautious in how we interpret it because there Absolutely. is a Marxist tradition in Russia that may or may not be on the verge of overthrowing the government. I mean, revolutions happen overnight. And Russia has such a long and storied history of left wing activism that it shouldn't be out of the wrong realm of possibility that that government post Putin can be something that we would actually agree with more on policy than it is right now. So getting back to it, established as a formal institution in 2009, BRIC, now BRICS with the addition of South Africa, was conceived as a consortium of rapidly developing economies. Over the years, it has given birth to two principal financial instruments, the New Development Bank, a counterpoint to the World Bank, and the Contingent Reserve Arrangement, and IMF or International Monetary Fund equivalent. However, the collective economic impact has been modest at best. While India and China have continued their growth trajectory, Brazil and Russia have struggled to recover from the 2014 commodity shock. Meanwhile, South Africa has ceded its position as Sub-Saharan Africa's dominant economy to Nigeria. Seven years after the establishment of BRICS, trade among most members has declined. And again, I think that's that last sentence, I mean, 
those are very parsed statistics, right? Because I think you can look a lot of at a lot of recent statistics that show that trade is going up, you know? Um, also, what are kind of like the root causes of what's going on in Brazil in 2014, you know? Um, we had the Bolsonaro government in between there, right? Lula's coming back and strengthening this relationship on more of like the left and progressive side. So again, it's all about kind of like this really insidious framing and the way they choose to present sentences and statements and statistics. Yeah. And why is Nigeria the dominant economy? Does it have anything to do with all of the shell oil that's there? Right. It's this idea that trade is good. In itself, there's no definition of what this trade actually looks like. And I'll be honest that I, I don't know the weeds to this, but just because country A is trading more with country B doesn't mean that their relationships or that the nature of that trade is actually to the benefit of it's country not a B. zero sum game. Right. So trade has declined. Okay. What trade in what? Trade to right. whose benefit? How are you measuring trade? Like none of this is explained. There's no citation either. It's just a piece of propaganda. I mean, it's similar to when you hear like capitalists now describe Venezuela, right? And you can cut this out if it's not relevant. But the argument's always that like Venezuelan wages have gone down since um, the revolution. But why is that? It's because oil companies paid a small percentage of people a shit ton of money. And that raised the, the median wage of the country. The working class people didn't earn, you know, they were, they were as decimated as working class in any capitalist country. And there's, there's a lot more equity now, but yeah, maybe the median wage has gone down, but that's because they got rid of all these oil companies that were just paying a few guys, you know, ridiculous wages. So it, it seems like it's in that kind of vein, that statement. And if trade and GDP were really the greatest measurement of a country's success, the United States would be head and shoulders, a paradise for everybody. I mean, clearly there are other measurements that are more substantially important to measure a country's well-being. Absolutely. No, I think that's a good point. So moving on. The dynamics within the bloc are increasingly complex and strained. India, its fastest growing member, is positioning itself as a counterbalance to China a rivalry exacerbated by profound suspicions between the two, which descended into bloody border clashes in 2020. The flashpoints between the two countries are numerous. Troops fought hand-to-hand battles in the towering mountains, forming their mutual frontier again in 2022, and in recent weeks, India joined other countries in protesting against the new and expanded version of China's official map. The document showed parts of several foreign countries included within China. The Communist Party then told everyone to calm down while making things far worse by canceling Xi Jinping's presence at the forthcoming G20 meeting in Delhi. Unnamed sources told Reuters this was China's response to the dispute. In Brazil, meanwhile, under the Workers' Party, leadership of, pre- leadership of President Lula da Silva, the party's popularity has cratered even as the government cultivates ties with Russia and China. Relationships Relations with neighboring Argentina are currently largely benign, but joint relations are always open to renewed rivalry. We already talked about the relationship between India and China, so we don't need to rehash that. But I love the way, just over and over again, this article is framing every single aspect of BRICS as a rivalry and a challenge. There's no room 
for cooperation or mutual beneficial relationships at all in this organization. But imagine how they describe NATO. Do you think they use that same language or any other trade organization? We're going to get to that a little bit. And just because I want to talk about like how they use popularity. I mean, I did see some statistics in Brazil that the popularity of kind of the government as a whole was low. But there was a recent article from El Pais uh, International. I'm not sure what this publication is, but this article says that Lula's popularity is rising with 60% approval of with him as president of Brazil, right? There were some earlier signs, I think, earlier in the summer that popularity was low, but it is rising now. So, I mean, it's just the point that, like, you can cherry pick these statistics to, you know, fit your message if you want. Um, but I, the most, one of the more recent things I could find actually shows that Lula is actually gaining popularity as he works through a lot of the challenges that were left by Bolsonaro, not just by Bolsonaro, but years of U.S. interference and everything like that as well. In any case, and also like this, joint relations are always open to renewed rivalries. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, yeah, I mean, but what are you saying there? Is there anything tangible? It's just another like kind of like, you know, lingering phrase there to kind of give you these ill feelings about the situation. Um, right. It's, it's to remind you that these are not rational countries, that these are countries headed by megalomaniacal uh, dictators that can never actually get along. Right. So they only understand the world in terms of conflict and violence, which is why the United States has exhibited nothing but conflict and violence towards them since World War II. Yeah. And we're about to get to the NATO part, but we'll just read, read ahead a little bit. So the relationship in some ways augurs what might work for an expanded BRICS. Countries seeing themselves as dispossessed or mistreated by history or just the post-World War II order might put aside their differences to find common ground once tiresome issues like fair elections and systematic torture are off the agenda. That would suit China. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Who had fucking Abu Ghraib, you motherfuckers? Yeah, and I don't know that we would maybe call it issues of fair elections, but uh, I think the United States has had plenty of issues executing their own elections in the past 30, 40 years. Look what's happening in fucking Florida right now. You want to talk about fair elections? Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I just, I can't get over this idea. Like, what about fucking Allende coming yeah. up on 9-11, aren't we, right? The fucking 9-11 that I care about is fucking overthrowing Salvador Allende. What the fuck? Fair elections. Go fuck yourself, these people. And systematic torture. I mean, like I said, I already said it. What about fucking Abu Ghraib? What about fucking Guantanamo Bay? What are you talking about? What about Fulton County Prison, where a man was eaten (laughs) alive by bedbugs? Yes. I mean, our whole prison system is just one massive... Torture factory. Torture, yeah. It's all it is. That would suit China, Russia, and Iran very well indeed. Okay, on what fucking basis? Okay. A new global dawn would see trade expand and the democratic world bow to a new and uncomfortable reality. Like you said, the democratic world has been making that bow for some time. September 11th is the anniversary where the United States overthrew the democratically elected socialist movement of Allende. The United States and Great Britain overthrew the democratically elected Mossadegh in Iran. The United States overthrew the democratically elected... I mean... You could go on and on. Yeah, How many times has shit. this happened in the since World War II? I mean, just listen to like the podcast we did on Nicaragua. I mean, we, we in our like short catalog, we've got how many instances of this? Yeah. 
and we haven't even we haven't even scratched the surface. No, this is insane. This is these people are fucking insane. But Bricks is ideologically heterogeneous. Yeah, we know. Is the concept of <laughs> counter hegemony a belief that liberal democracy is not a universal ideal, but a tool for Western imperialism <laughs> enough to hold them together? At the summit, Putin, Xi Jinping, and special guest Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela all railed against this supposed hegemony, proposing instead a multipolar world attuned to regional nuances. Yet the governance model they advocate boils down to various flavors of authoritarianism. I love that term, supposed hegemony. After he's talking not, not about... in fact. <laughs> like, right. Like, how is that even disputed by a think tank? Like, that's pretty standard stuff at this point for any I mean, like, intellectual conversation. I mean, honest to God, like, at least come out front and say, like, look, this is good for us. You know, we have this and it's good for us and this is why it's bad. It would at least be more honest, you know, but this whole like no one buys this shit anymore. I've said it time and time again, like no one is buying this stuff except for like brain rotted liberals. I'm kind of I'm sorry about that a little bit. I, I told you guys I was going to get a little angry reading this, but like now we're getting to the part where I'm going to lose my mind a little bit because you know what? Can you imagine Nicolas Maduro having a reason to rail against U.S. hegemony? When his country has been blockaded just because they sought to find economic sovereignty and a social safety net for their people based on the resources that they have in their own country. Can you fucking imagine when the anti-imperialist Trump was plotting for, you know, plotting to take their oil? I mean, he said to everyone that wants that, you know, wants to listen and has ears that, you know what, we really, we really want Venezuela's oil. They got a lot of good oil down there. And then as soon as he couldn't get it, he said, well, it's kind of bad, isn't it, after all? But you know what? This is all such bullshit. And like, just to think that these people that Russia, Putin, who, you know, tried to work with the, with the West after the fall of Soviet Union and said, look, let me trade with you guys. Let me part of NATO will be part of your security thing. You know, that he would have some grievance that China who worked with the West, right? He said, send everybody over here. We'll work with you guys. We'll cooperate with you guys. You know, we'll, we'll, it'll be to the benefit of both of us. And then now you're going to try to take fucking Taiwan from us. You're going to surround us with all these military bases. I mean, to imagine that these people don't have real and legitimate grievances is fucking insane. And you're living in fairy la-la fucking land. I don't know what to say anymore. Right. To, to not even just repeat a point I made earlier about the idea that if the United States was being honest and actually wanted to renegotiate their relationship with these countries, they would be taking them seriously and actually thinking about their grievances and where they deserve to be recognized for their grievances, renegotiate on good faith. But the reality is that the United States hasn't actually recognize the legitimate president of Venezuela. We've been continuing to recognize that guy, Kwong Guaido, until January <laughs> of last year. Like, how comical and on its face ridiculous is that? We didn't even recognize the person leading the country because we wanted him overthrown. And yet, we're mad that he's talking about U.S. hegemony when we, we can't even choose, they can't even choose for themselves who leads their country. It's silly. I mean, and really, it should be laughed at. And I just hopefully like we're getting some more people to laugh at this dribble because that's all it is. I'm, I'm almost done with this article. Um, just one last point to sort of reiterate a previous point. I don't think we're necessarily supporting every aspect of every leader that's mentioned in this article. I mean, we've clearly stated that we're not. But it's very clear that they have real grievances that the United States Department of State and Defense is refusing to believe. And instead layering on this bullshit framing 
to obfuscate the reality. Absolutely. I don't know how many times we have to say that, but it's just like I'm against the U.S. doing this bullshit and getting away with it every time. Right. Do I want things to go better in Venezuela? Well, name any country. I would love them to go better. I mean, nobody has achieved the perfect form of government. Nobody has achieved perfect relations within their nation. I mean, it's just like it's a dumb argument to make. Yeah. And just the entire point is that they should be allowed to get better on their own fucking terms without U.S. interference. It's just hard to imagine where the United States has done well in terms of creating a better nation. Nation building. Yeah. How, how did it work in Iraq? How did it work in Afghanistan? How did it work in the created countries of like South Korea and, you know, the short lived Southern Vietnam? How did it work? Right. Or the former colonies. I mean, people don't usually look to the Philippines or Haiti as doing incredibly well. And they could be. And they could be. They could be. Anyway. So, you know, since we talked about these various flavors of authoritarianism, which I don't even know if I want to go down that rabbit hole right now, but just throwing that (laughs) phrase out there and it's just like a catch all for everything bad. But anyway, so we have to contrast this with NATO, getting back to it, an organization described by Russia as existing solely to counter its influence. I mean, they wrong. (laughs) I mean, the U.S. needed a place to employ all those Nazis they took from Germany. So there were at least two reasons for NATO. Yeah, the, NASA the, couldn't take all of them. <laughs> yeah. And the military industrial complex needed a reason to keep living after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? The difficulty for global authoritarianism is that the, in parentheses, soon to be, I'm assuming they're referencing Ukraine there as the soon to be. I think they mean or, Norway. I don't oh, think they're technically in, part in, of it in, yet. Sweden. Yeah. Sweden. Okay. It's, they still need approval by, by Turkey. Okay. Anyway. 32 NATO members share a broad consensus on values, governance, and economics, precisely the cohesion that BRICS lacks. Even as the authoritarian leaders, there's that fucking word again, of the expanded BRICS grow weary of Western hectoring on human rights, many like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE continue to maintain strong bilateral ties and unspoken dependency on the United States. If the UAE comes under sustained attack, would it call Beijing or Washington? I guess so it again. depends on who's attacking them. Right? Yeah, seriously. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and again, the hectoring on human rights deal. I mean, when Saudi Arabia is fully in our pocket, we're happy to overlook the human rights abuses, which have not really changed because the dynastic family that's in place there hasn't changed at all, right? But, you know, if they overstep their bounds and show their independence a little bit too much, I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more about human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. So again, from a purely ideological perspective, yes, like just about every state is conducting some level of human rights abuses. But I don't want to hear fucking a word from the US. Who is and I will say this with no hesitation at all, the biggest perpetrator of human rights abuses on a global scale. Probably in human history. Just in terms of sheer fucking magnitude of human lives affected. So I don't want to hear a fucking thing. Call me out if I'm wrong. There's definitely a good argument to be made. I'm sure there's some second place there, but yeah, I mean, I don't know that you really want to struggle for that title. They're definitely up there. No, I know. It's just like, okay, we can talk about like, if, if we want to get into it, I mean, we can talk about the rapidity at which the Nazis affected human life and we can get into ifs and buts about like, what if they succeeded and thank God that they didn't, you know? 
in terms of just the absolute magnitude and such a short time scale of human devastation. Absolutely. But I mean, when you start compiling the statistics of North Korea, Vietnam, all of the lives lost in the Middle East and Central Asia over the past few years, I mean, the Native American, the indigenous populations here, right? All of the lives affected in Latin America. I mean, is there is there a government, is there a state in human history with more blood on its hands and human rights abuses aided and abetted than the United States? You haven't even included, like like Levi said, Fulton Prison, just the prison yeah. industrial complex in this country. Domestic I mean, stuff, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Britain has quite a, uh, a record as well. And they have yeah. the slave trade. They have India. They have their colonial subjects that they submitted to mass death and murder. Yeah, but again, it's a it's a country. You're really, you're really minimizing. You're really minimizing Britain's <laughs> atrocities. Right. Atrocities there. Yeah. Right, but, Sorry, right, but, yeah. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> I think Britain just came up at the wrong time. If the global population was of the same magnitude, <laughs> yeah. then, you know, they could probably hit those same numbers. You know, they they wouldn't have the rookie numbers that they do. <laughs> so now you're admitting to massaging facts here with your own framing to put America on top. That's yeah. right. Sorry. Let's see how much more we got this. Okay, we only got two more paragraphs. So while the summit offered nebulous calls to move away from the U.S. dollar and even a shared currency, there was no concrete economic strategy. There's little to recommend these ideas to major American trading partners in the Middle East, and especially not to Argentina, whose leading presidential candidate is a fascist. I mean, they didn't write that. Has proposed adopting the American <laughs> dollar. Far from presenting a unified front, the new BRICS formation appears more like a motley assortment of trading partners, several of whom are firmly pro-Western. How then will it differ from the Cold War era non-aligned movement, which now numbers 120 members, but whose influence is very questionable? The expansion of BRICS will dilute rather than strengthen Russia's aim to make politics out of trading agreements. Maybe one day, Globally Grumpy will create a new organization led by China and dedicated to remaking the world, but this isn't it. I mean, this is kind of a, I don't know if it's a good point, but on that previous paragraph where, it, what does it say? No concrete economic strategy. So, yeah, I mean, does the West and NATO have a concrete economic strategy? And I mean, I mentioned Scotland using renewables. I mean, they're in contrast directly economically with Britain, never mind the US. I mean, like, I, I, I know, Levi, I think you, you said some article offline about what did, did Biden finally said he wouldn't drill in, was it Alaska? Yeah. But I mean, like we are full, I mean, no Western nation is, it, is adopting a good climate policy, but Europe is like diametrically opposed to the Americans, like full speed ahead on oil and natural gas. Not diametrically, but, but like they're, they're a lot more amenable to renewables than we are here. I mean, there's like not a concrete strategy here. I mean, and to say there is, is just like, again, fucking stupid. But anyway. Yeah, it seems to be making two arguments that there is no ideological cohesion within BRICS, yet there is in the United States and NATO. Yeah. Yet they also want to argue there is no ideological cohesion because there is no hegemony going on, except in areas where they want to say that there is, but there isn't. Right. Yeah. Just, uh, it's just a piece of propaganda. It doesn't need to make internal logical sense. It just needs to get a point across. And the point is to be afraid of bricks because yeah, they're bricks. coming after you. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. This, that's all this is. Bricks bad. 
don't look beyond your already inherent assumptions. The U.S. and the West, good, because we support democracy, Western values, freedom, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, just use this to reinforce your pre-existing notions. And definitely, definitely take the State Department line on bricks right now. But don't worry, they're not too scary. But, you know, just in case, just in case they are scary, you know, make sure that you remember all this about these big, bad authoritarianism authoritarians right yeah they're somehow at, at the same time utterly harmless in the greatest threat to u.s hegemony at the same time and that's what it is all the fucking time right it's like i don't know it's just so hedging I, bets yeah exactly i don't know i'm just i thought that was kind of like a fun little article i'm done with that drivel i i'm done <laughs> with it i mean but the i guess the point is is that these think tanks are like really insidious and there's a lot of money that goes behind them and there's thousands of them across the country. And I think maybe with a few exceptions, they're all, you, you'll find that Lockheed Martin or NED has given them some portion of money and are labeled as one of their supporters. And that automatically should make you suspicious and question some of the assumptions that they're making in this. I don't know. Um, I got not much more on that other than to say that I think that at some point we'll do a whole episode on think tanks. <laughs> That's for another time. Um, maybe just in some more positive news. And I think we're going to start wrapping up here because we've been going for a while, but um, just to turn to some local stuff and wanted to fit it in somewhere, maybe in the top, but I think it might make sense to close here. Um, but just locally, you know, because we've been having this conversation, especially in the context of our new deal series about reform versus revolution how electoral politics may play a role in building the left, you know, and again, I think we need to be very reasonable about that, but I think we have a really good ongoing campaign um, in Pittsburgh in really Allegheny County. So there's this gentleman, Carl Redwood, Carl Redwood Jr., um, longtime black socialist, community organizer, advocate, worker, who is running for basically the most black district in Pittsburgh, right? And Pittsburgh is gentrified. It's affected by racialized politics, just, the, just as about every city is in the country, right? And Carl, I mean, he's running against another black Democrat. Well, not another black Democrat, but a black Democrat, right? Um, but Carl's standing as an independent socialist in this race. And he's using his platform to decry gentrification to decry housing prices, right? I mean, I think one of the bylines on his campaign site is the rent is too damn high. He's talking about corporate abuses, these abuses of nonprofits like UPMC. So some of the institutions in Pittsburgh, Carl is coming at them because they're making the lives of the working class in the district he's running for and the populace broadly worse. And he's standing independent, but I say independent, but, you know, we actually have built a strong coalition around Carl's campaign, and it comes from places like DSA, the Green Party, Socialist Alternative, and my party, Party for Socialism and Liberation. And I just want to say that it's very atypical for PSL to endorse a candidate outside of our own party, but we endorse Carl because Carl is standing independently and saying, like, look, we need an independent working class alternative to the existing power structures in this city. And we believe in his message. 
So I'm not saying anything that, you know, our social media hasn't already said, but I think it's really encouraging that we have a guy like him with history, you know, of being a radical, being able to bring a lot of different tendencies together to say, hey, look, this is a guy that's going to fight for people in our city. So I think it's a really encouraging um, development. And it's a place where we can go out and talk to people about Carl's platform and use that as a way to, one, get support for Carl because Carl can win this fucking thing because he's an amazing human being and he's saying all the right things and also radicalize people. And I think that's part of Carl's whole thing here. So just a a bit of good news, I think, on on, on the local front. Yeah, and I think to even take your point about think tanks looking at who supports them, you could say that about these politicians on the local level. And while there's plenty of things that we disagree with between the Democratic uh, uh, Pittsburgh Party for Socialism and Liberation, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, the Green Party, Socialist Alternative, the fact that they're all coming together to support one candidate is an incredibly good sign. This guy is a good person. He's a good politician. He's a good advocate for people's rights and deserves any level of support he can get. And it's just sort of, we would love to see that kind of coalition and partnership on larger scales, if that's possible. Though within the system, it it may simply not be possible. But I think that's sort of what we're investigating on the New Deal episodes, is how much can we actually look into these systems uh, for hope and rejuvenation rather than abandoning these systems. I mean, certainly like these local races are a good testing ground for this kind of thing, right? And kind of feeling out how it can work. And I think there's going to be a lot of cases where it's like, hey, you know, you guys are interested in this. We're interested in that. But when it comes to this campaign and the message that we're trying to get across, like we can, we all maybe have our strengths and like what we want to focus on and we can still all help Carl win, you know? Um, and hey, help- popularize socialist politics, you know? There's already a number of test cases, so we see the failures of New York City, but really I I think we can still consider Chicago to be a win, at least as something that can be replicated on the citywide level of what happens when these coalition of leftists get together to elect somebody that at least represents a base human interest in anti-capitalist development. And just, you know, for our listeners, trust that you're resident communist is not getting bought into electoral politics too deeply here. But (laughs) when we have a local opportunity to work with a good person that could affect that change and again, provide, not provide, because I don't want to say that like, you know, there's using of, of someone like Carl or anything like that, but like build a platform upon which you can stand alongside someone like that and radicalize people towards socialist communist politics, then again, I think as we're talking about in the history of the new deal, then that, that is an opportunity that, you know, our predecessors in this movement have taken and used to great effect. I mean, maybe not to great result in the end game here, but it's always been part of the project. So for sure. So just a little bit of local news. Um, Before we wrap up, I think we can talk about some of the projects that we have coming up. Um, So Levi, maybe you want to talk about the New Deal? The New Deal, we have a couple episodes already lined up, just sort of trying to get some special guests together with their schedule. It's as much as I want to hint about that. Uh, We've also got a reading sort of series on Marx that we're going to get away from Capital for a minute and read the 18th Brumaire 
because I think it's just really important in terms of understanding what we've already gone through in Capital, and it's something that we reference constantly. Uh, so it's just, it's worth reading. So the next episode of Marx will be on the 18th premiere, so don't be shocked that we're not going back to Capital for a minute. Yeah, you get more time to read Chapter 15, so thank us for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As a book in itself. Steve, you got any updates on the project side? I'm just reading about the IRA. So yeah. <laughs> That's brewing. I have no, no idea on the timeline, but it's coming. So, For me, I've got a couple different um, half starts, I would say, on various projects on the U.S.-Israel-Zionism-Palestine series, right? Um, I think <laughs> where we're headed is I want to get to 1967. And then really move beyond that. I just got a uh, book by Nurma Sala, who is a, you know, basically, I think we've mentioned him on some episodes in the past. He's an authoritative historian on the situation over there. Um, but the framing of this book is Israel as an imperial power, an expansive imperial power in its own right, especially after 1967. So I think that's going to be a good book to utilize as we kind of synthesize, you know, the agency of the imperialist Israeli state as it relates to the U.S., you know, interest in that. Yeah, we promise someday to get past 1967, but it's a big fulcrum point in uh, Israeli honestly, history. Honestly, we're, I, when we can talk about this, maybe we can cut it out. I'm honestly at the point where I'm thinking maybe I just summarize that point in like, 19, like, in like a page and then move beyond it a little bit and maybe we do some supplementals later. But it's... It's one of those things where I feel like I could just spend a whole another 10 pages just on that year and I still wouldn't do it justice. So I don't know how to yeah. manage it yet, but we're, we're working through it. Um, in any case, we got a lot lined up for you. Um, hopefully you enjoyed these slop episodes. I mean, this was kind of a marathon of an episode here. We'll see what actually makes, makes the final cut. But um, as always, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. Give us a review again, as long as it's positive and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, y'all. Thanks. Adios, paisanos. Bye.